Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. While capture storage in the Viking era generally meant looting, we are trying to bring home what you do not want to keep, the CO2. For this to be a success, of course, we need to see a wave of CCS projects in Europe and in other countries. Initially, I hope to see more capture projects around the North Sea and in another in other Europe using the infrastructure we are now establishing. And after that, I hope there will be more CCS projects both in the rest of Europe and globally so that we drive down costs and improve performance. Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg talking recently at an event organised by the International Energy Agency, which has said that in order for society to meet the targets of the Paris Agreement, industry needs to use carbon capture, utilisation and storage. The IEA believes that there needs to be a huge ramp up in industries such as heavy manufacturing, the steel and cement industries for example, capturing CO2 emissions and for the CO2 emissions to be then either sequestered underground or reused. Norway has experience with sequestering CO2 in recent years and is intent on leading this charge for more CCUS, having launched the Longship project, which aims to store its own CO2 emissions, but also those of industries in neighbouring countries. In short, the Norwegian government hopes to make the case for storage as a service for those companies and countries that might find it difficult to store their own emissions. You're listening to the Aranax podcast from Fathom World, and I'm Craig Eason, an impartial but nonetheless passionate ocean and shipping journalist. This is a podcast focused on the transformation and change, the people, the technologies of the ocean and maritime industries. In the last episode of the podcast, we focused on research into making carbon capture technology small enough to fit on a ship. Now in this episode, we look at what looks to be a new growth sector for shipping, the carbon dioxide molecule as a cargo. The International Energy Agency is bullish about the need for CCUS, and so is Norway and some other countries, notably ones that see the need to support the continued economic success of their industrial sectors. Norway was one of the first to set up a permanent CO2 capture system, and the gas is pumped into a depleted oil and gas reservoir. But perhaps we should look at where the captured CO2 will come from in the future to understand the demand for it to be piped or shipped for long-term storage or reuse. This is Samantha McCulloch. She's head of CCUS at the IEA, talking during the release of the IEA's recent CCUS report. So looking in detail at the four strategic opportunities for CCS that we've identified, as the executive director has indicated, the first one is really about existing assets. We will not meet our climate goals without finding a solution for emissions from the world's existing energy assets, and early action is needed. So in the next decade, more than half of CCS deployment is dedicated to solving this issue. Many of today's power and industrial plants, so this is steel, cement, chemical plants, have only been built in the last two decades. And if these facilities were to continue to operate to the end of their technical lives, they would still emit more than 600 billion tonnes of CO2. So this is around 17 years' worth of uh, current annual emissions. So this would leave virtually no room uh, for any new emissions generating assets, 
in any sector, which is simply not realistic. So it may be possible to change the way many of these plants operate, uh, to use them less or to uh, implement efficiency measures, for example, or they can be retired early where it's economic to do so. But CCS is the only technology solution that would allow these existing power and industrial facilities to continue to operate and to continue to contribute to economic development or energy security objectives, but in a way that's compatible with deep emissions reductions. So coal-fired power generation is indeed a big part of the CCS retrofit opportunity given the scale of the existing fleet, uh, particularly in Asia. But retrofits to industrial plants, including cement, steel and chemicals, will also be needed in the next decade in a pathway that's consistent with a a net zero goal. That was Samantha McCulloch, head of CCUS at the IEA. She adds that there are more than 20 carbon capture and storage facilities around the world, some active since the 1970s and 80s. But the focus should be on the capture of emissions from coal, gas, biomass-powered power generation, and even heavy industry applications, cement, steel, chemicals, production of hydrogen, as well as the interesting idea of direct air capture, where CO2 is pulled out of the atmosphere. And this volume of CO2 will require a new transport chain, either through pipelines or shipping, or a mixture of both. And there are a number of projects on the go to underscore this. The UK, for example, announced in its 2020 budget a CCUS infrastructure fund of at least £800 million for two sites in the next decade. And Norway's Northern Lights project, the transport part of the Longships project the country's Prime Minister was talking about earlier, sees energy giants investing $700 million with the Norwegian government, and this requires ships. One of the first projects will be taking emissions from a Heidelberg cement factory by ship up the Norwegian coastline. And even more recently, Heidelberg Cement has said that it will be installing a carbon capture system onto Sweden's biggest cement factory located in the Baltic Sea island of Gotland. This, the company says, will be completed in the next decade and see the annual seaborne shipment of about 1.8 million tonnes of CO2 annually to a suitable storage facility, such as the Norwegian Longships project. Elsewhere, in early 2021, South Korea and Saudi Arabia announced an MOU it'll look at shipments of hydrocarbon gases from Saudi Aramco, the kingdom's oil major, to Hyundai Oil Bank, a refiner in South Korea, with a backhaul being used to ship the CO2 produced when the gas is converted to hydrogen. This CO2 is to be used by Saudi Aramco in enhanced oil recovery. Norwegian owner Larvik has uh, a fleet of small coastal vessels in CO2 shipping trade and it announced a feasibility study with the Baltic energy company Klaipedos Nafta and Japan's MOL to look at CO2 shipping for eventual sequestration. No investment decision has been made there though. Meanwhile, the engineering firm Vatsler in Finland has a CO2 carrier design and Hergland Marine Solutions, working with H.B. Hunt Engineering, field a new bilobe tank and cargo handling system for CO2 carriers. So I wanted to know more about the potential for CO2 as a cargo for the shipping industry. It already exists at a small scale. But if the projects for carbon capture are true, there will need to be more. But how much more and where does shipping stand alongside pipeline development? 
Yes, it already exists at a small scale, with ship owners such as Larvik Shipping in Norway being involved in shipments. But if the projections for carbon capture are true, there will need to be much more. But how much more, and where does shipping stand alongside pipeline development? Last month, researchers at Cranfield University in the UK published a research paper in Applied Energy Journal. It's a review of large-scale CO2 shipping and marine emissions management for CCUS. In part, it looked at the potential for carbon capture as a shipboard solution. That's what I looked at last episode of the Aranax podcast, but largely at the potential for global shipping as industrial CCUS expands. Lead author was Hisham Al-Baroudi from the University Centre for Thermal Energy and Materials. So I talked to him about the paper and the future potential for shipping as part of the decarbonisation solution for other industries. CO2 shipping has two potentials there. First of all, it tends to have lower capital investments uh, than the pipeline counterpart for, for the transmission point of view. So this enables actually having uh, being CO2 perceived as a waste uh, in, ter- in terms of the large capacity that are produced, uh, enables a lower uh, investment to mitigate this, to transmit it. So that's that's the first aspect. But then you have essentially some countries, some realities where uh, even if uh, by choice, a pipeline approach wouldn't even be feasible at all because pipelines, they require, you know, like some certain geographical, um, you know, like uh, situations that need to happen. And for example, countries which have propensity for natural calamities or where they really don't have any hydrocarbon presence, then simply pipelines can't be the way. So. Shipping comes into place uh, at this uh, stage where continuous production or continuous capture of CO2 emissions from the main emitters, power industries or different type of industries anyway, that need to be matched with the sinks, with the storage sites. And this um, shipping option offers a flexibility in matching because we don't need to build a fixed trajectory. But at the same time, if we want to make this happen, and there is a lot of commercial uh, presence already on CO2 shipping, relatively speaking, it is already going on in the food and brewery industry. But the problem is that the quantities won't be uh, anywhere near what CCUS needs to think about. And then the question is, we need it in liquid form. What are the optimum conditions for CO2 to be shipped? So if we are transporting captured CO2 from a power plant or from an industry, through ships, then we need to consider that the fuel we're burning in the ship itself will actually have some carbon footprint as well. So, so the paper uh, brings together these concepts throughout, you know, the team that that worked on this on this publication to address what's the role of CO2 shipping in CCS, CCUS, and then how does that uh, fit into the wider net zero concept? Are we going to be able to withstand something that that's also environmentally you know um, suitable and friendly when you did the research and when you've looked at um, the industry as it stands you mentioned that co2 shipping at the moment is 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 relatively small it's um, industrial food and beverage or used in or the oil and gas industry do you feel that there is the technology capabilities to develop the ship sizes to meet that demand i don't, I don't think there's any big uh, stoppers for any projects to be developed. Uh, there's certainly a lot of development work that needs to be done because, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, the quantities need to be scaled up to a large uh, large amount. This has both technical implications, as you said, sizing the vessels, designing the vessels that can withstand that. And at the same time, it's got some process safety implications where when we were thinking around 
the order of like this X amount of tons that was, was for a product uh, point of view, the safety considerations were different. But if we are thinking about sequestrating millions and millions of tons per year, then even the, the scale up of the process safety need to happen. And then let's look beyond also the CO2 shipping industry and what's going on at the moment, which is obviously the first point of reference. But then we have the LPG, LNG industries as well that serve as well as a, as a learning point. Of course, we need to account for the differences that we have uh, in terms of the nature of the fluid, the conditions between natural gas, petroleum gas and CO2, but certainly the know-how in handling that such liquefied uh, fluid chain is critical uh, to actually develop large operations in CO2 shipping. So although there's no, as um, to summarize, uh, no huge uh, project stoppers to, to really enable this vision, uh, there's, there's some significant development work that needs to be done to, to bridge this. When I looked at the IEA reports, it suggested that there are a lot of potential storage places around the world, that there's a sort of heat map that they produced. And they suggested that there's a lot of potential for, well, effectively, I think they were saying that there's not a long distance between where most CO2 capture is going to take place and a potential storage site. And a lot of them seem to be also landside, so there wouldn't need to be the shipping element of that. So what percentage of the CO2 collected through carbon capture would you see needing to be shipped? Do you see it being a small amount so we would only need the smaller vessels? Or would we be able to develop some sort of backhaul trade with gas carriers that can carry other gases in another direction? Uh, really, the scenarios and the options to to choose between pipeline shipping, combination of both, really depends on how uh, you know, like uh, uh, how you look at the infrastructure in terms of uh, the transmission networks and the storage slash um, um, emitters point of view. If we have a look at the say, we just have a UK perspective. This will be slightly different than having a European perspective and even more different than having a global perspective. So what I'm trying to say is that if we really want to be uh, successful in the decarbonization strategies, we should, should think about this in terms of a global issue. You have a lot of countries which have, let's say, higher storage capacity than they can foresee to require in the near future. Then you have countries that will have, uh, you know, like a smaller storage capacity than they, what will, they, they will emit. So in that sense, creating a as flexible as possible infrastructure is what allows and will allow, uh, you know, like uh, the, the world to move together towards decarbonization. Now, there are currently some impediments um, or let's say some some issues that are being explored in terms of uh, making this happen on a global scale. And part of this is uh, what's known as the London Protocol, which is the you know, a protocol that you know doesn't allow the um, transnational transport of uh, CO2 as perceived as a waste. However, there may be some changes that uh, or amendments that can cover and make CCUS uh, fall within the scope and allow uh, countries to export their emissions, given that there's an agreement between different countries that one country can host and create, uh, you know, like a storage capacity for other countries' emission. And by all means, for some countries, this can actually be even a, an early mover, helping creating a market potential to import other countries' emission and really enable their, their shipping as part of their, their infrastructure. Because uh, as we said before, um, if we Many reports in the early stage were simply doing the equation of looking at 
pipelines for a given scenario A to B and then shipping A to B. And then they were giving some kind of like a trade off of costs and risks relating to that application. But this is something that changes very fast if we start looking at the wider picture. And the wider picture never really quite, um, you know, settles if we say that because as you said, you know, if we look at the UK point of view, then yeah, we can identify clusters, we can identify scenarios where one or the other will be best. But if we start enlarging the picture, looking at European sites, then we know that European storage, uh, you know, sites are mainly located in the North Sea. So how are we going to actually connect all the emissions from other countries into into the storage sites in the North Sea? That will require a flexible approach. And even wider, if we start looking at countries that really have a high high storage capacity and then they can really import other countries emission then are we just going to rely on on you know sunk costs of pipelines or do we need to create that combination of infrastructure so this is another key point that needs to be uh, i suppose the message is needs to be seen as a global issue where cooperation uh, really occurs between different countries and uh, emitters clusters just to cover just the last question you asked, I think I didn't really mention much uh, on your second side of the question, which was repurposing the the, the carriers. Uh, and this fits into this scenario as well, where you say, yes, we can create a chain where hydrocarbons and CO2 can work together, and then the, the ship can actually be versatile for that. But um, uh, how much value is this going to add to the whole chain? Yes, it is going to add value. But uh, think about if we the largest chunk of the cost operational and capital point of view for the CO2 shipping chain is the actual liquefaction plant. And that is something that, uh, you know, like regardless of the, the carrier, uh, we need to to think about in terms of as a free uh, standing point of view. So, yes, it will add value. It is increasingly explored, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Korea and other countries. But um, actually, it's not going to solve the whole problem because we have even a bigger challenge there with the liquefaction. So, so it certainly adds flexibility and it's a positive, but uh, it won't be a huge, huge uh, player. Lastly, um, if shipping is going to, or ship owners, if the industry is going to look at uh, synthetic fuels, then CO2 is a pipeline into that. You need CO2 to make some of the um, synthetic methanol, for example. But what about direct air capture and shipping companies being able to pay their CO2 dues by paying to have certain amount of CO2 removed from the air through a direct air capture plant? Is that, is that a feasible way to look at how you integrate shipping's CO2 footprint? Is it feasible to look at taking shipping CO2 and extracting that from the air somewhere else? Well, that's a really good question. And uh, the concept is even looked at from uh, independently from a shipping point of view. So direct air capture has been the, you know, the, the very strange aspect of, of this whole portfolio of carbon reduction, which was looked at at the beginning as a utopic element of, uh, you know, like uh, dealing with the, with the matter. And then uh, slowly uh, the the interest has increased in the industry a lot. And then now, if you notice, there's a, most of the technology development or the interest of uh, technology developments, especially, uh, you know, by, you know, international standards are really, um, really pointing their uh, focus on direct air capture as a real potential one to make a difference. They are uh, really... This is based on the fact that, uh, yes, capture technology, capture technologies as a whole 
um, they don't really sound as novel as they did before. Um, so when you have post-combustion point of view using solvents, using different uh, um, methods after the combustion or pre-combustion or oxy-fuel, these are all technological aspects which are quite uh, quite established from um, a research point of view and they have the potential to be implemented. But um, direct air capture can really have a high impact and high potential. It's been looked at quite interestingly now. I think there's been a, a switch of attitude towards this uh, this potential technology. Where can it lead us? That's really hard to say at the moment because um, I think the, the problem that we have here is that understanding that the unicorn, the perfect technology will never really come into place. There will always be a cost associated with this. So are we ready to create something of a suitable business framework to make this happen as efficiently as possible? Uh, that's really where we need to at least get started. And as things will move forward, I do believe that uh, technologies as direct air capture may very well take a, you know, a key role into all this. But uh, it needs to start from somewhere. And I think it best of start from what the, te the technologies that are quite established or have the potential to really be implemented commercially uh, with a with a successful, let's say, outcome. The success of carbon capture is going to be in a carbon price, isn't it, rather than in um, a, a, the pure commercial value of selling CO2 to create a synthetic fuel. It needs that carbon price. It, it will do, uh, especially more so in the short or medium term. But even in the long term, it is it is hard to to believe at the moment with the data that we have that utilization markets, uh, being them, you know, like from feedstocks to any products and uh, even like uh, uh, CO2 as um, working fluids in new innovative power cycles, it is difficult to see a projection of this utilization being anywhere uh, near the uh, the generation of CO2 as we've seen globally. So. You know, even even in the best and most optimistic scenarios, we can't entirely rely on utilization or a market for CO2 to really be the key mover for CO2, uh, you know, like a reduction. That that can have a good part, especially that can strengthen a little bit of the business model, get us started. But I don't think we can expect this to be the problem solver in any way, uh, at least not with the data and the understanding that we have today. That was Hisham Al-Baroudi talking to me about the recent paper from Cranfield University Centre for Thermal Energy and Materials about the growth of carbon capture and the need for a shipping chain to help develop a viable and suitable transport chain to link capture points with the locations where the CO2 will either be stored or sequestered or possibly reused in carbon capture fuel creation. And also about the still novel idea that CO2 can be captured directly from the air. I'm not sure if direct air extraction could be part of the shipping decarbonisation discussion. There are certainly more challenges with that than I can possibly cover here, not least how shipping can be integrated into global emissions accounting. But it is a novel idea to use a technology in one location to remove CO2 from the air that has been emitted at another location that has difficulty in doing so itself. Well, now it's time for a roundup of some of the other news defining the transformation of the shipping and ocean space. Here's Nick Chubb from Thetius. Thanks, Craig. Nanosatellite company Kepler has just announced that they have raised $60 million in a Series B funding round to support the continued scaling of their KU band LEO Satellite Comms Network. Uh, 
Based in Canada, Kepler designs, builds, and operates small-sized satellites, providing connectivity and space to mobility markets, including the maritime industry. This latest raise takes Kepler's total funding to $90 million and gives the company enough capacity to produce 10 new satellites per month as they move towards a goal of creating a, co a complete constellation of 140 satellites. Dutch performance monitoring company We4C has signed an agreement with Inmarsat to join the satellite company's certified application provider program. This means We4C can offer their web-based fuel performance monitoring service via Inmarsat's digital solutions, Fleet Data and Fleet Connect. The first operator to take on the new application is heavy lift ship owner Roll Group, who have successfully trialed the performance management tool after the installation of Inmarsat's Fleet Express with the Fleet Data IoT platform embedded. Staying in the Netherlands, uh, an international alliance headed by the Port of Rotterdam Authority has been awarded nearly 25 million euros in EU funding to implement a range of projects for smart port logistics and sustainable transport, including the development of a zero emission autonomous barge. Finnish technology giant Vartzilla, the largest industrial partner in the program, is set to receive the biggest portion of the grant to fund a sub-project to, to demonstrate a commercially viable autonomous intraport, intraterminal container shuttle using the company's Smart Move suite. Finally, this week, French tire manufacturer Michelin has announced a new solution designed to boost the decarbonization of shipping. The Wingsail Mobility Project, or WISMO, is an automated telescopic inflatable wing system that can be fitted on both merchant ships and pleasure craft. The system is a product of, the, of a collaborative venture between Michelin and two Swiss inventors. According to Michelin, the wing sails are specially suitable for Roros, bulk carriers and oil and gas tankers and can be fitted onto new builds or retrofitted to in-service vessels. The Wismo system will be rolled out commercially in 2022 when Michelin expects to go into production following completion of a successful trial. Nick Chubb from Thetius with a roundup of some of the other news around the industry. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoy the Aranax show. I know I enjoy putting it together. So it would be great to hear from you and about ideas you may have for topics that you'd like me to cover. Please also like, share and talk about this podcast. And also take a look at the Fathom World website where we have more stories on the topics that we cover on the podcast. All about the transformation of the shipping and ocean space. Until the next time, goodbye.